0: Uh, We're continuing our series in the life of Elijah this morning, and all of the stories that we've considered so far have given us a fabulous insight into Elijah's life, haven't they? And the kind of things that God did in and through him. And this morning's story is another particularly exciting uh, and interesting chapter in Elijah's life to me. He only kind of features at the, the end of this one, but as we'll see, there's some important stuff that we can learn from him. So this story is a story of righteousness and conviction and integrity and honor, isn't it? It's also a story about greed and avarice and petulance and pettiness and it's a tale of cruelty and connivance and corruption and vindictiveness and a tale of courage and bravery and honesty and obedience because it's as much a story about the human heart as it is about anything else. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. What does the Bible have to say to us about our hearts and the kind of heart that we might have? So hopefully I can bring something out of this for you this morning. Now, most of you will be familiar with the fabulous Psalm 86 and in verse 11, David asks that God will give him an undivided heart. Did you spot that in the reading this morning as I did the the call to worship that psalm talks about an undivided heart and as David writes about having an undivided heart in that psalm he's once again in a situation where he's surrounded by ruthless enemies who are out for his downfall and the whole psalm is actually one of praise for the goodness and a reminder of God's love and kindness throughout David's life And he's asking that God might deliver him and rescue him again because David serves him. But in the midst of all of his praise and his adoration about God, he makes this particular request that God would give him an undivided heart. So what does that mean? What does it mean to to have an undivided heart? I'm I'm tempted here because I'm so used to speaking to young people that I actually want to pause at that point and get some ideas back from the room. But we could be here all morning, couldn't we? So just bear with me a second. But but let's just dispense with the biological stuff, first of all, shall we? This this is not asking God for medical intervention. This is not, sorry, Lord, that my left and right ventricles are are, are seriously in danger of separating from each other. So could you just fix the pump before it backs up altogether? Uh, It's not that kind. Kind of uh, divided heart that we're thinking about, but neither is David asking God to fix his wounded heart from some sort of slight or affront that his enemies have got against him in this situation, and nor is he asking that God might um, fix him, heal him from a broken heart by some kind of relational unravelling or anything. In fact, it's not an emotional fix that's needed at all, because in the Bible when we think about the heart, the heart isn't seen as the seat of emotions like we think of it as. It's not the place of romantic love and sad longings that we uh, in the UK tend to, to think of it coming from. Um, that's far more likely to come from other, some other soft organ in the ancient world like you, you, know, you love somebody from the depth of your liver or something like that. That's far more likely to be In the Bible, the heart is the seat of the will and the intention, the determination of a person. It's the very core or the centre of a person's being. It's the place from which a person chooses their path, their focus and their direction. So when David, as a psalmist, asks for this undivided heart, he's asking God that his sole focus might be on the Lord himself. Lord, will you be both my true north and my compass? Will you enable me? Will you give me... The strength to seek you first above all things. Will you direct my paths? Will you set my feet on the right path and keep me to it? Will you keep my eyes fixed on you and stop me from turning to the right or to the left? Lord, in a sense, be my everything. And that's a fairly noble prayer. Isn't it, don't you think? I think that's a great prayer. That's a kind of prayer that you know when someone prays that, God's going to delight to answer it. Yeah? There are all kinds of prayers and petitions that get prayed throughout the scriptures. There are all kinds of things that we bring to the, the Lord for ourselves. We've prayed quite a lot already in our service this morning, but the ones that I know God delights to answer are when we come to him and go, Lord, give me a heart after your heart. Give me a focus for the things that matter to you. Give me a sense of what it is that you want to do and how you want your kingdom to come in this world. And then, Lord, help me to put my hand to what it is that you're asking of me. So, Lord, help me, David, saying, to set my affections, but my intentions, my focus on seeking and serving you. And with that in mind, I just want to think for a minute or two just about the alternatives to that or or broaden that out a little bit and think this morning. We will get on to Naboth, by the way. We will. Honestly, I promise you. You'll see where it fits in a minute. But I want to think about our hearts and what we can learn from the hearts that are kind of exposed in this whole story as well. So type of hearts from the Bible. If you've uh, read through the book of Proverbs, you'll know that that's probably the book in the Bible that's full of most conversations about your heart. So you can have this undivided heart that's a cheerful heart. It's a happy heart. It's a discerning heart that understands what God wants of it. It's a peaceful heart and a peacemaking heart that seeks to live at peace with all people but also one that is at peace with its lot that God has given it. It's grateful for where it sits and what it has. It's, it's a pure heart. Uh, it's not after things that don't belong to it, because it's a trusting heart. It, it's grateful, uh, and it trusts that God will provide what he wants to. And it's, it's a wise heart as well. And, of course, the flip side of that would be to have what the Bible describes as a foolish heart. And we'll... See some of those things as we think about um, Jezebel and Ahab's hearts in this story—a corrupt heart. Proverbs 17 talks about. wants a corrupt heart? No, no, a deceitful heart, an evil heart, a purely evil heart. We often say, don't we, that a person's actions were entirely evil, but we can have a hardened heart. Or a haughty heart. I like that. I could do a load of H's here. We could have a hard heart or a haughty heart. One that's proud and arrogant, thinks too much of itself. A, A lustful heart. A heart that devises wicked screams as well, Proverbs 6 talks about. Or a heart that actually rages against the Lord. One that actually hates what God is trying to do and is out for its own gain. But you can also have the kind of heart that's filled and characterised by the burdens of this world if you're not careful. You can have a heavy heart, the scripture says, one that's sad and weighed down or a sick heart, one that's maybe physically sick, maybe it is a medical issue, but one that is sick in itself. It's unhappy. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's just not well in and of itself. But of all of these hearts, my favourite one, is um, the one from Psalm 119 that talks about God's people having fat and greasy hearts. How would you feel about that? The the Lord looked at you and said, He has a fat and a greasy heart. I'm kind of like, no. Um, but let's move on. Let's not be those that have fat and greasy hearts this morning, shall we? Let's, let's not be those people at all. Let's be those that have different kind of hearts. And let's just think about the kind of hearts that each of these characters exhibit this morning, shall we? So Naboth. Um, oh, look, there we go. Thank you so much. Well, As if by magic, the next one came up. Now, what do we know about Naboth? We know that he owned a vineyard in Jezreel. And that vineyard formed part of his inheritance and then the rich and powerful king comes and asks him to sell it for its full market price or even take a better vineyard in exchange. I don't know about you, I think Ahab thought he was on to a winner here. If I can't give him just a, a good asking price, I'll bribe him into letting me have this vineyard by giving him a better one. I'll find him a choicy one, a bigger one, you know, a more fertile one. Uh, surely he's going to take this and economically of course that that kind of makes perfect sense and at first glance there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with the offer but Naboth says no to the king and it's worth exploring why he does that because it shows us something more of where Naboth's heart was really at you see in the days before chip and pin devices and ISAs and share portfolios and things like that One of the most secure ways of of ensuring the financial future of you and your family uh, was to possess land. Land provided you a home, it provided you roots, it provided you work, it provided you uh, a living, either by producing a harvest that you you could live off, or by yielding other usable resources. And when Moses and Joshua divided up the promised land, between the tribes and clans, each clan was given its own allotted inheritance I know that a lot of you will know this but that became their birthright that's the thing that was passed down to them that's what God had given to each of these clans and there were special rules in place about what you could do with that land that you've been allotted now you could sell it you could sell it but here's what's important to the story here. If you sold it or traded it for less than it was worth, because, perhaps because you'd fallen on hard times, for example, and you needed to free up some cash, or because you'd become ill and you couldn't work the land anymore, so um, you were in trouble, you could sell it for less than it was worth to somebody and, and buy your way out of a place of hardship. And there's lots of examples in the scripture of people that had to do that. We might think about a couple later on. But whilst a new owner then took possession of the land and all of the crops it yielded and that kind of thing, you and your family retained the right, if you were ever in a position to do so, to actually purchase that land back again at the same lower price that you'd sold it for. Does that make sense to you? So it kind of gave you that security. So if I sell this land, if I sell this vineyard for less than it's worth, then at some point maybe me and my uh, my descendants can actually buy that land back and it'll become ours again. We can have it back again. But if you sold it for the full value or traded it up for something else and you and your family lost all of their rights to that land forevermore and it passed over into the hands of the other person. So when... Ahab comes along and he asks Naboth to sell him his vineyard for the full value or to trade him up for a better one. Basically, what he's asking him to do is give up his birthright and give up his inheritance and everything that's been passed down to him from generations to generations, maybe even right back to Moses and Joshua taking possession of the promised land before all of God's goodness that's gone on and been given to him in this land this promised land that God has brought him to he's being asked to give it up and if he does then he's got no right of redeeming that again it's gone it's lost so he will be well blessed he will have an abundance he will have an enormous thing he will have a life of luxury. He could probably live off the income of that for the rest of his life. But his descendants are going to lose out forever. Um, you may recall the story of Ruth and Boaz. Do you remember that in the Bible? Those of you, somebody nod at me. Come on, I'm used to young people. They nod and they smile at me. You, well, not always. Sometimes they stare blankly back and wonder what on earth I'm going on about. So maybe we're there. <laughs> But if you remember Ruth and Naomi when they came back into the land there was Boaz there who's a a kinsman, described as a kinsman redeemer someone who had a right to actually purchase back the land that uh, Naomi had had to give up when Elimelech, her husband, had had to sell the land because of a famine that had happened which is where she ended up moving away to another country. When she came back that land could be redeemed. And by... Um, marrying Ruth and having children with her then Boaz actually restored the family line all the way back. He was able to redeem and give back to uh, Naomi and Ruth's family line all that happened and of course their son turned out to be Obed who was the grandfather of King David who wrote the psalm that talked about an undivided heart and King David of course eventually Became the descendant of Jesus. And so you can see how in God's economy, in God's plans, how wrapped up and tied up all of this stuff was. And, and if Naboth had gone, yeah, all right, I'll take the cash and right. run. What would have happened to that whole family line and things in God's economy? It's interesting to no. So your portion, your allotted land, your inheritance is of massive economic value but it also tied you back into the history of God's people yeah. it also tied you back to your place in God's purposes and your plans it's more than a piece of property it carries huge significance for your family and your identity as part of the people of God so when Ahab asked Naboth uh, to sell it him so he can dig it up and build a veggie patch it's about as close to asking him to sell his soul for money as you could possibly get so it's no wonder he says no but this is important to me I think it's not about for Naboth about refusing the king it's not about holding out for a better offer it's about being grateful to God for the portion he and his family have been given and honouring their family tradition and their place as part of God's people in the land his portion isn't something to be leveraged or traded up It's something to be thankful to God for throughout all generations. David takes it even further in Psalm 16 where he talks about actually the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. My inheritance, my portion is a great place but he wasn't actually talking about the land itself then. He was talking about actually God is my God. He is my portion. I love being part of God's family, about part of God's people. And so I'm not even going to mention the name of the other gods. I'm only going to worship the one true God. When Naboth says no to Ahab, he's choosing to say yes to what God has provided for him and to be thankful for the lot that he's been given. His is a content heart. It's a thankful heart, a steadfast heart, an honourable heart, one that isn't swayed by the offer of more. Or bribed into giving something up. For him, it's true, as James said, that, that, as Paul said, sorry to Timothy, that the godliness with contentment is great gain. Yeah, the honouring God is of great gain. Our hearts. What are our hearts like? Are we those people who are grateful? for what God has given to us are we thankful for the portion that God has allotted to us are we those people who are rejoicing over what we do have or are we those people who are sometimes tempted to just wish we had something better would we be prepared to trade up what we have if a better financial offer came our way you know it's important for us to Ponder these things sometimes, because unsettling as it actually is, it's good to test our hearts, as the Bible says, and ask ourselves: you know, am I grateful for what God's given me? Am I truly thankful for what we've said? But let's let's move on, shall we, to Ahab's heart? Um, So Ahab's king. Ahab's the king. He's got enormous power and privilege and wealth. He's got houses and palaces and horses and armies and his tables are laid with the choicest of fare he's dressed in the finest of clothing he can have pretty much anything that he wants brought to him and it's still not enough have you ever come across people like that? that they have an incredible abundance and it's still not enough he wants more because you see, when you let your heart get greedy and your eyes get covetous, nothing will ever be enough. You see, a thankful heart like Naboth's can turn down a bigger and a better, but a greedy and avaricious heart like Ahab's is never satisfied. So he sees Naboth's vineyard, he wants it for himself, and he doesn't even want the wine or the historically produced uh, stuff that's come from this land, he's going to dig them all up and build a veggie patch and why Naboth's vineyard? Because firstly it's convenient, it's close to his palace and he wants it for its ease and secondly because the land's extremely fertile. If you know anything about the valley of Jezreel at all, its original name came from a city that was based there whose, whose name and title actually meant God sows. So fertile is this patch of land uh, that actually produces a massive abundance to it. Uh, and some people have even suggested that, that the Valley of Jezreel was probably the original site of the Garden of Eden because it produces such an abundance and, and a wealth of stuff. It's really bountiful. But Ahab is just thinking of himself... His heart's thinking of it to ease its comfort and its personal gain. It's a selfish heart, a self-interested heart. And it wants the choices fetched for lunch and it doesn't care how it's going to get it. And when he can't have it, his heart shows its other side. I love the translation, Peter. Thank you for that one. Because the, the image of King Ahab sulking on his bed with the covers pulled up over him like some petulant little child refusing to come down for dinner because it can't have What it wants. It would be an hysterically funny image, wouldn't it, if it wasn't just so desperately sad that that's the place he's got himself into. There's nothing funny about Ahab's heart from God's perspective, and and verse 25 of chapter 21 tells us that actually there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife, he behaved in the vilest of manner. Now, if you know anything about the Book of Kings, you'll know that Matt has pointed out last week as well that actually, this kind of epitaph, there was never anybody as bad as this king was who sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord until the next king comes along and then it turned out to be even worse. And he was, there was never anybody like this king. He was, he was terrible. But what an epitaph to have, yeah? There was never anyone with a heart that bad The fact that you might be remembered for your idolatrous heart, reflected in the vilest of behaviours, is a terrible thing to think that God might ever say of you. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. Proverbs 27:19 says, And Ahab's heart is reflected in the way he behaves." When he can't get what he wants, spurred on by his wife, we see just how corrupt and vile a person can become when wealth and power and privilege and entitlement are allowed to take root in a life above all else guard your heart says the scripture for everything that you do flows from it for those as those who seek to follow the ways of God we need to learn to know and watch our own hearts too It's amazing just how easily they're led astray. Or is that just me? So, maybe. What's your own heart like? Do you know your own heart? Do you know what it's like to be led astray by? Do you ever watch yourself and catch yourself and thinking, oh, I need to be careful in that area. It's amazing just how easily, bit by bit, temptation by temptation, a heart can be drawn away from the life the love of the Lord and our relationships get distorted and our compassion for other people lessens, diminishes as our own selfish desires take over. Maybe, hopefully, we'll never do anything quite as bad as Ahab. But I don't want an epitaph that says well he wasn't as bad as Ahab was Nick. He wasn't quite that bad, you know. Well, he was, there were people that were worse than Mick. You know, I, I'm wanting to live for a well done from my Lord. Are you with me? Don't you want to get to heaven and just hear, well done, good and faithful servant. All that time you just felt you were slogging away, doing nothing. God was watching and was pleased. That's the kind of reward that we want, don't we? And we want to have hearts that are living for that well done, that bring about the kingdom of God here on earth through everything that we do. People who are known by their love and their compassion for other people who leave the world a better place than they entered it. Who live out the compassion of Jesus through lives that are transformed into his image. That's what we want to be, isn't it? Because if we actually needed any encouragement to guard our hearts and keep a short leech on our desires. We need to look no further than Jezebel to see what happens when a heart casts off all restraint. A couple of weeks and chapters ago, we we heard, didn't we, about this same queen uh, threatening the life of Elijah and promising a gruesome death by the end of the following day. Do you remember that one? So, like, you know... That, that, that if I do not make your life like one of them by the end of the day. When you look at the kind of person that Jezebel was, it's not surprising, is it, that Elijah ran from her. She's the kind of uh, heart that manifested uh, utter cruelty, calculatedness, viciousness. She's almost inhuman in her pursuit of our own goals and she appears completely devoid to me of empathy for anybody else. It's no wonder that I Elijah ran from her. In fact, I go as far as to say I don't think there look like there are any people in Jezebel's will. Do you understand what I mean by that? When Jezebel looks around her, she doesn't see people. She looks at problems or situations to be leveraged or issues to be dealt with. And actually, even a relationship with her own husband, uh, when he exhibits behaviour that she doesn't like, her heart's so corrupt, she, she's just like, she utterly despises him, and she's like, I can sort this problem out. This is just an issue to be dealt with. This is something to be done. And what happens, of course, is one of the scariest accounts of abuse of power that you're ever likely to come across Anywhere, So Jezebel sets her heart on the prize and she's going to get that vineyard for her husband whatever it takes and what it takes is a ruthless plan to have the rightful owner of that land killed. What it takes is a letter to the right corrupt officials to lay a trap and find a couple of hard-hearted liars to falsely accuse the innocent man of a crime that requires capital punishment and then having contrived a situation Hear this, that makes Naboth look like the bad guy and then look like the dispensers of divine justice. They have him killed for a crime he hasn't even committed. That level of corruption is utterly outrageous. Let us have our eyes open for anything that we spot where there is that level of corruption part of it in this world in which we live I think it was Lord Acton wasn't it who said that power corrupts and absolute power has a tendency to corrupt absolutely Um, great men which means people who wield great amounts of power um, are almost always bad men was Lord Acton's comment on people it's difficult to maintain integrity a right heart, a good heart when actually you can do anything that you want with very little consequence but by the grace of God of course our hearts can be sustained and restored I'm going to crack on You know, if the gospel has a bias at all, it's probably a bias towards the little guy, isn't it? It's towards the weakest and the poorest. I know God loves everybody the same. He even loved Ahab and Jezebel. That might be hard for us to understand, particularly when he dispenses divine justice in their direction and promises them that the dogs are going to lick up their blood also. Yet, God's heart is still one of love for all people. But particularly the weakest and the poorest, the outcast and the marginalized. And all through the scriptures, God shares his heart and he speaks to his people about being careful how they treat the most vulnerable amongst them. Psalm 140 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and ensure justice for the poor. Psalm 9, verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, the stronghold in times of trouble. Leviticus 19 talks about not exploiting the poor or your neighbour, you mustn't rob him. Jeremiah 22, administer justice and righteousness, rescue the victim of robbery from the hand of the oppressor, don't exploit or brutalise the follower. You know, the fatherless, the widow, which means anybody who's vulnerable and don't shed innocent blood in this place. And Isaiah talked about us learning to do good, seeking justice, actively correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless, pleading the widow's cause. Which of course for us is not just about not doing any harm. It's not about don't just be like Ahab, but actually actively as God's people taking the part of and standing alongside and with the weakest, the most vulnerable and the most threatened in our world. Proverbs 14.31 says this, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Every time we do wrong to our fellow man, we slap God in the face and insult his image in one another. But he who is generous to the needy honours God. So Zechariah again talks about not oppressing the widow, the fatherless, the poor. Let none of you devise evil in your heart. And the famous verse from Isaiah 58, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? Is this not the way to worship God? Isaiah is asking. To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke and set the oppressed free. And of course, Jesus himself, as Jesus' followers, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight for the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim the year of God's favour and abundance for all from the Lord. So, we might not feel... Many of us like the exploiters uh, of others or the oppressors of others. And I'm not, my intention this morning is not to make people feel bad in any way. Um, I doubt very much that any of you have slaves at home. And if you do, do me a favour, go home and release them. It's a very naughty thing to do. Okay, God doesn't like it, really. And we don't go around looking for those that we can defraud out of their inheritance or or that kind of thing. But there are lots of attitudes and principles kind of that have become ingrained in our modern society that are dangerously close to the kind of behaviours that the Bible talks so much about, that have a negative impact on one another. We'll all be familiar with the phrase, won't we? It's, it's, It's not personal, it's just business. Yeah? You heard that one before? By which, of course, I mean I'm not interested in the personal consequences of my actions against you. All that matters is I made a profit. Yeah? People don't matter. Money does. Our world says that constantly and we need to be alert for it and make sure we're not complicit with it in any of our actions if we can help it. We don't care sometimes the way that our actions impact one another. Many of you will have been part of work situations even where there's some, um, uh, there's some business acquisition or the, the workforce is reduced which puts undue pressure on those that are left and people end up working long hours, have no family time. All that kind of thing. All of these things, God hates the way that they work where we create situations that um, put other people under oppression. There's a lot more that I could say about this, but I'm going to cut myself short. Just to say this, be careful, because we live in a situation that keeps consumer prices low, and we all get happy that we can buy things at nice low prices. Don't we? Is anybody else like that? This was ingrained into me as a young man growing up. My father was never more delighted than when he got a bargain. Yeah. It didn't matter if he needed the thing that he bought or not. But if it was a bargain, he was really, really impressed that he'd managed to do it. It would bring him delight for days. Honestly, he had rolls and rolls of wallpaper that he bought at bargain prices that he'd never used. They were stored in a box room in the house. Uh, but, but for each of us, if we're not careful... You know, we we love having a bargain. We love having the thing at the right price. And actually, if we're not careful, we don't think about the consequences to other people of something coming to us at its lower possible price for us to consume. And it's easy for us to be blind to what happens in our supply chains and that kind of thing, where the the people that produce it in the first place um, are literally barely putting bread on the table and we end up rejoicing over the fact that we've just had another one of those things at a bargain price that we can consume. We need to be mindful of the way that God looks at some of the things that we do and make sure that our hearts are for the poor and the needy. Micah 6 summarises God's heart on this, doesn't it? He's shown you, O man, what's good. What does the Lord require of you? And everybody said... To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. Should we do that together? Come on. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. So the Apostle James points out, doesn't he, that loving God actually means loving people. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Ahab and Jezebel don't love either. Of course. Their heart seems to be incapable of love for anything other than themselves. And in this one scenario that we thought about today, do you realise they broke seven of the Ten Commandments? Seven. That's quite impressive in one action, isn't it? Uh, So... They chased after other gods, they were known for that, they made idols, they set up altars to them, they coveted what didn't belong to them, they bore false witness against somebody else, they took the Lord's name in vain by having somebody stoned for blaspheming God when he hadn't. They committed murder and they stole somebody else's property. It's a pretty impressive run of all of the things that God told them they shouldn't do. It's no wonder that God takes such a dim view of the pair and sends Elijah with his judgment. And let's just finish by thinking about Elijah's heart, which I described as a courageous heart or a brave heart, an honest heart, an obedient heart. And I want us just to think about needing to have that kind of heart before God. Because a couple of chapters ago, do you remember Elijah in the wilderness the last time? yeah, we were thinking about and he's there and he's run away and uh, either describe him at that point in time as probably having a broken heart yeah or a depressed heart maybe and he's running for his life from the very people he's now being asked by God to go and confront he was running away from Jezebel and Ahab at that point in time when the angel found him in the desert and now God's go- saying I tell you what go down and have a chat with those guys And and deliver this message to them. But then, God calls Elijah away. He feeds him through the angel, bringing him bread and water. And when he's refreshed, he leads him to Mount Horeb. And there God appears with him. And that encounter with God changes Elijah's heart. He's got a renewed heart, a different heart. His courage and his faith is back. He's faced in his fears. You see, an an encounter with God's always going to transform your heart. Remember what we were saying at the start of this sermon. When we see the Lord for who he is, our mortal lives are changed. His image within us gets polished. And as we see him our lives get changed to be like him. It's why our vision and our values in church are becoming all about seeing lives transformed by the presence and compassion of Jesus. We believe that our hearts and lives can't help but be transformed for good when we're seeking out God's presence in us, when we look into him and we're seeing him for who he is. And then we're asking him to help us see the world around us in the way that he does. But just a couple of points as I finish from this life of God. Taking a stand for God with often, if not always involved, taking a stand against the actions, the behaviours and the injustices that God hates. You know, Jesus did that all the time in his earthly ministry, don't he? Taking a stand against all of the stuff that God hates. He got him killed eventually. Um. But if we're trying to follow Jesus... Standing up against those actions and behaviours that we see in the world around us. In a generation that's largely forgotten what righteousness and justice look like. Confronting stuff like that is part of what God wants us to do. Standing for truth and righteousness in this generation. And praying that prayer, yet not my will, but yours be done, Father. Despite our fear of what people will think of us, despite our anxiety about what people might do to us. Facing all kinds of trouble in this world, we can take heart because Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Did you like the little bit in this? There's almost a comic book moment, isn't there, where Ahab sees, uh, love the translation again, Peter, where Ahab sees Elijah and he's like, ha ha, so you've found me, my enemy. Yeah, somebody said to me in the week, it's almost like uh, Bond and blowfelt, isn't it? You can always imagine stroking the white cat and going, "Ah, my enemy. Yeah, I'm confronted by my adversary. But the world will often rail against those who speak the truth of God as if somehow of those people that speak the truth of God's word have taken it upon themselves to become an enemy of our culture and their plans and schemes. But the truth, of course, is actually the reverse. Those who speak God's truth into a situation are not the enemy. In fact, they may prove to be the very ones, as happened in this case, who by their words prove themselves to be true friends and actually bring about a change of heart in the corrupt and the greedy that they confront. And, uh, but if you have that kind of heart, if you have that kind of heart which needs to be challenged, which is not God's way, which oppresses and uh, comes against the other people in this kind of way, then actually you've made yourself an enemy of God and these plans and these purposes by oppressing and afflicting other people. So those that speak truth and love into those situations are not going to be the enemy. They're always going to be the ones that have come to rescue and bring about praise. We need to be people whose words speak light and life and point in a different direction. If you point out somebody's failures, if you point out society's failings, if you make a stand in a different way, some people will always see you as the enemy. But actually you're not being an enemy in that situation. You're being a true Friend, Not just to God. Not just to those that are being oppressed. But also speaking the truth, in love is always being a friend uh, to those even whose behaviour is oppressive and counter God. Last thought, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, says Proverbs 17. But the Lord tests the heart Let's be those who willingly invite the Lord to search us and try our hearts, as the psalmist says, and to continually have our hearts transformed by the presence of his Spirit at work in us. Lord, give us an undivided heart. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, you know my heart and my intention this morning is not to uh, bring anybody down, make anybody feel condemned, make anybody overly concerned about their heart, but I thank you, Lord, that by your Spirit you speak to us and you want us to have pure hearts, righteous hearts, hearts after yours, full of love and compassion for the world around us, Prepare to stand against injustice. Prepare to take the part of the weak and the poor. Prepare to put our money where our mouth is when we say we love you and therefore we will love others around us. Lord, help us to have courageous hearts, righteous hearts, undivided hearts focused on you. Pure hearts, thankful hearts, compassionate hearts. Lord, Help us to be your hands and your feet, your eyes and your ears in this world that you've made us a part of. In Jesus' name, Amen.